Welcome, everyone, to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. On this edition of the podcast, we're going to set the stage for the Sermon on the Mount by taking a closer look at Matthew chapter 4, which gives us a little insight into the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And on The Wire, we're going to consider the validity of TDS, that's Trump Derangement Syndrome, and the recent admission by comedian Chelsea Handler that has the media buzzing. All that and more as we give them the bold speak. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the Bold Speak podcast. Uh, Glad you can join me as we continue our study of condition of the heart that takes a look at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, today what we're going to do is get to the second half of Lesson 2 and finish off all of the context that we've been building so far. In the three previous episodes of the podcast, uh, we've explored the, the history of the people of God as they Uh, They sought to find their way through the the many captivities by surrounding nations. We we heard about each of the nations that overtook God's people and how they interacted with Israel, and then eventually the alliance that was made with Rome in order to make sure that the people of God were protected. We also talked about the the different groups of Jewish leadership that formed over this time, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and how they sought control over the people in a a desperate attempt to, to maintain Jewish identity. And finally, we saw how John the Baptist prepared the way of Jesus by challenging the Jewish leadership and calling God's people to return to their trust in him. And now all that leads us here. Here where we're going to explore Jesus and his ministry to the people of God. And it's here that we're going to begin to see how all of this context was, was so important in helping us understand what Jesus is asking of his church and consequently what he's asking us to think about, all right? what he's warning us about. All right, so all of it's been, been leading here, and I'm excited to get into Jesus' ministry itself. If you happen to have a study guide, go ahead and grab that. We're going to be beginning on page 9, again, the second half of Lesson 2. If you don't have a study guide, don't worry. You can go ahead and grab one on our website. That's www.theboldspeak.com. There, if you go to the store, you can purchase this uh, study guide for only $10, and that $10 goes to support this ministry and future podcasts and lessons that will be offered through Bold Speak. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the Bible. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. I'm going to be reading, as always, from the English Standard Version of the Bible. If you don't have an English Standard Version, don't worry. You can grab whatever translation works for you, and I'll give you all the references so you can follow along. If you uh, don't have access to a Bible at the moment, or maybe you're driving, don't worry. I'm going to go ahead and read all of these to you so you can follow along easily and keep up uh, with me as we go. Now, In this short section of scripture, we're going to see a lot. There's a lot here to to look at, to to focus on as Jesus begins his ministry. And we're going to see real quickly how Jesus operates very differently from the rest of the Jewish leadership. And this is what starts to set Jesus apart and what begins to attract people to him. His message, the way he carries himself. It's just very different from the, the way that the people are used to seeing those in positions of religious leadership. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into this. This is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, 
he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. We begin with question 6. What significance does the quote from Isaiah 9 have regarding Jesus' ministry? The quote from Isaiah 9 is the section in verses 15 and 16 where he says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now this is a perfect example of, of Matthew's connection of the Old and New Testaments. Isaiah 9 is the portion of Isaiah's prophecy that speaks of redemption for Israel. Now, most people are familiar with Isaiah 9 for verses 6 and 7, right? This is the infamous, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, right? This is the reading every Christmas that reminds us of the birth of Christ. But verses 1 and 2 give us a context for the purpose of the coming of this son. See, Zebulun and Naphtali were tribes of Israel, which had been overrun by the Assyrians in the first captivity. And as a result of this captivity and the several successive nations that take their place, the people had forgotten what it meant to, to be the people of God. They were ignorant to God's identity or, or even what he represented. See, they were in darkness and they needed light. Now, Matthew uses these verses to point out the connection to the prophecy. Jesus' ministry wasn't random, but perfectly in line with Isaiah's message and highlighting an important point for us to recognize. Jesus brings light to those who walk in darkness. That is to say, Jesus is focused on reaching out to the lost, providing them the proverbial light to guide them back to what they had lost and whom they had forgotten. And see, this is the significance of verse 17, and this gets us to the next question. Question 7 asks this, why are Jesus' words in Matthew 4.17 the same as John's in 3.2? 
Alright, so if you look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, you'll see John saying this exact same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, Jesus is picking up where, where John left off. Why? Well, because this was the message the, the people needed to hear. All of the waiting of God's people had led them to this moment. All the prophecies, all the promises, everything that God had done was bringing them to this particular point in time. But the people weren't prepared. The Jewish leadership had taken the people of God off script. They had taken what God had built and, and twisted it and morphed it into something that was unrecognizable to John and, and now also to Jesus. And this is why Jesus continues the message of John. It's critical that the people understand the significance of what is happening. And so the words are identical because Jesus, just like John, needs to convince the people to return to their faith in the true God. And so Matthew places Jesus' similar words here to prepare you for what's to come in Jesus' message. Essentially, Matthew is setting you up for this critical point that Jesus made to the church and, and what I think is appropriate for the church to hear today. Okay, and, and sort of to summarize it, I, I'm going to give this to you, and I, and I want you to listen very closely to this because this is essentially what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. It, it's as if Jesus is saying this, People of God, something is very wrong, and you can feel it. Now, you might not be able to put your finger on it yet, but, but you know something needs to change. In some ways, the church is, is unrecognizable. Even though all the parts are there, something is just still missing. Now, if you've ever felt that way, or maybe feel that way now, listen to what Jesus is going to say in the Sermon on the Mount. My hunch is that it, it will resonate with you. And my hope is that it'll shed light on a darkness that exists in the church and uh, one that we must pay careful attention to before we, I don't know, lose the church altogether. And so you can start to see it in the next verses. You can start to see now uh, kind of what Jesus is going to get at as we begin his ministry. You're going to see this uh, bear itself to be true. He's going to challenge what the Pharisees and Sadducees had turned the church into. And he's going to call them accountable to the changes that they had made to support their own agenda and then work to reclaim that on behalf of God. All right. And so this is what all of this has been leading up to. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is really going to show you this. But you see this immediately. And that's in verses uh, 18 through 22. So let's go ahead and get to the next question that addresses that. Question eight. Why do you think that Matthew places the calling of the disciples here in Matthew? Immediately what Matthew is showing you here is that Jesus does things very, very differently, and you can see that in two ways. First, notice that Jesus calls fishermen to be his disciples. Now you have to understand that the, the role of disciple is one who follows this, this great mind and religious leader was something that was reserved for the educated, right? It was something for those of prominence and position, uh, the elite to, to, to join in and follow someone who was an, uh, considered to be an incredible scholar, a uh, high religious leader. Uh, and so the, you, were, you were pretty important if you were a disciple of a, a major sort of important person. 
Jesus, rather than having disciples that fit that category of person or kind of fit the status quo for the religious people of the day, instead calls fishermen. Now, fishermen are rather uneducated, right? They, they have a trade skill. They go fish, they come back to the shore, they sell it. They're not of high reputation. They're not looked up uh, at by the people. Uh, nobody considers fishermen of, of uh, kind of great status. They're just fishermen, laborers, dock workers, right? It would be like uh, someone of a high importance today, the CEO of a major corporation, seeking out those who would uh, take over and fill his spot as CEO. And when he does that, he goes down to, um, you know, the, the docks and finds a dock worker and says, hey, why don't you come learn how to be CEO? Right? People would be astonished. It doesn't seem to, to fit. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He calls fishermen to be disciples. And that's, that's very odd. All right, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is fascinating in that Jesus invites them to be disciples rather than them making a request to be disciples. Now, this was a common practice during the day of the religious that if you wanted to learn under a specific scholar, you asked, and it was a pretty significant thing to be chosen to be a disciple. Alright, so the very fact that Jesus makes the request of the fishermen to, to, to be disciples is very counter-religious culture of the day. Uh, and you're going to see this as later on in Matthew, actually following the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in chapter 8, you're going to see people ask if they can be Jesus' disciples, and he's going to call them to question as to whether or not they truly understand what that means to be his disciple uh, over and above the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what this highlights is that Jesus is all about the relationship with God and service in his church. And what he's saying is that, that serving in the church, being a part of what Jesus is doing, is not reserved for the educated or the elite. Right? It's a calling to all who would believe. So if you look at his disciples, and here, again, you, you only have four listed here. Uh, you have Peter and Andrew and then James and John. Uh, eventually, he's going to call Matthew himself, Levi, who, note, is a tax collector. So not only is he going to call uh, a disciple to come follow him rather than they making a request of Jesus, but he's going to call a tax collector who is seen as a sinner, as a traitor, as the worst kind of person to the people of God at the time. And so it's, it's really just an odd thing, the kinds of people that Jesus surrounds himself with, or at least it seems odd to the religious leaders of the time. What Jesus knows is that's not odd at all, because everyone is welcome to follow Jesus. Everyone is welcome to learn who he is and to be a part of what he's doing. And so again, right off the bat, a very kind of different thing going on with Jesus, and that's what draws people to him. He's very different than everyone else when it comes to religious leaders of the day. So let's go ahead and get into question nine. How does Matthew chapter four, verses 23 to 25, set up the Sermon on the Mount? Now to understand this, we need to look at the Old Testament prophecy associated with what's happening here, and that's found in Isaiah chapter 35, verses five to six. They say this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now, there are two things here that are important for us to notice. Uh, the first is, is notice uh, what Jesus is doing as he begins his ministry, right? It says he, he goes throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then it says as a result of that, his fame spread, and people started bringing him all the, all the sick people, right? Those afflicted with diseases and pains, oppressed by demons, having seizure, paralytics, and so on, and he heals them. Now, what we see in the Old Testament is that this is a sure sign of Jesus' authority as the Son of God. So many places in the Old Testament speak of the salvation of God's people as being marked by healing and miracles. And so as Jesus performs these on the people, they begin to follow him because of his mercy. Right? Not his intelligence or fame, not because he speaks in judgment as if he shows his power, they follow because he's something different from what has become all too familiar with their leadership. He leads with love amongst the people who desperately need it. Right? And it's this kind of authority that will astonish the people after the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks with authority, yes. But as he speaks with authority, he also acts with authority. When he tells the people that he's come to heal them, to offer them salvation, he actually lives out that gospel love in their lives. Unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees, his religious words aren't just words, they're actions. He doesn't speak about God being with his people and then distance himself from those people. He speaks about God being with his people and then actually goes and lives and... and eats and has fellowship amongst those very people. And so they see the actions that back up the words, something that has been sorely missing from the religious religious leadership of the day. All right, so that's the first thing to notice. The second thing is notice Jesus' audience, right? The audience that he speaks to, the people that he goes out to, is he specifically reaches out to those who are considered unacceptable by the church. Right? The, the unclean, the afflicted, those who had been cast out by their religious leaders because they were assumed to be lost to sin. Jesus seeks them out. He goes after them. He wants to be where they are so he can offer them redemption, healing, the power of the gospel. And see, again, this is very counter to the religious leadership of the day who distanced themselves from those people who basically said to them, well, go and get your stuff straight, go get yourself healed, go get everything fixed, and then when you got that taken care of, then come back and we'll welcome you back into the fold. And so again, Jesus is challenging the way that people understood the church in that day. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount is going to do for us. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to challenge us to consider what the church actually is, and whether or not that matches with what we see in the church today. And this is why this study is so important. When you finish the Sermon on the Mount, you will have a very clear picture of what God is asking us to be as his church, and that could, could give us an opportunity to, to pause and reflect for a moment on whether or not that's what we see. And if it's not what we see in the church today, then we have a responsibility to reclaim what is truly the church. 
and that is why I have been so excited to do this study. Because there are things in here that honestly I think you, you read or you hear, and it makes you reflect and realize there is something God is calling us to be in his church. And it might not be there all the time right now. In fact, in some places, I would argue, it's almost completely gone. And so we have a responsibility as the church to bring back these uh, critical and important ideas in regarding to the church, and then to act on them, to live as God calls us to live as his people, as those who represent him and his gospel love. All right, so that's a that's a really critical thing, and, and I'm excited. Next week, we'll actually begin the Sermon on the Mount itself. We'll jump right into Matthew chapter 5, and you're going to see some really incredible things right up front as we get into the Beatitudes. Now, uh, speaking of being challenged, uh, among the Pharisees and Sadducees, it's pretty obvious that there was a, an uneasiness about Jesus. What was his purpose, and how was he going to challenge the status quo? These are the things that, that really set the Pharisees and Sadducees into a bit of an identity crisis. Now, that being said, please don't misunderstand. I am not saying that President Trump is in any way uh, close to the person of Jesus. But the reaction of some to his position of authority is, interestingly enough, very similar. How? Well, that's the topic of this edition of The Wire. It's called TDS, which stands for Trump Derangement Syndrome. Seriously, look it up. For a while, many in mainstream media have dismissed it as a ploy of the Republican right to make the Democrats seem crazy, as if they had lost their minds following the election of Donald Trump. But in a recent interview with HBO host Bill Maher, Hollywood comedian and actress Chelsea Handler did something quite unexpected when it comes to TDS. She admitted it. She said, quote, I had a midlife identity crisis once Trump won because I had never had my world feel so unhinged, I think. End quote. She would later go on to say that she had to see a psychiatrist just to process the Trump victory eventually equating the feeling of Trump's presidential win with how it felt when her brother died. And that's when I heard it. Pundits on Fox News said, Aha! See, there it is, the admission we've been waiting for! See, they're crazy! She uh, equates the death of a family member to the election of Trump? That's ridiculous! And at first, it seemed like they kind of had a point. Then I considered it further. The truth is that we all respond to the events of life differently. Everyone has certain beliefs and ideas that cause them to react in different ways to different events. If a family member dies and you are close to your family, it's a tragedy. But for someone who is disconnected to their family, that same death, while sad, might not carry the same weight. It's a matter of how we understand ultimate things. Ultimate things are those ideas that build our foundation. They form our identity and establish our meaning and purpose in life. For the person who sees their pet as an ultimate thing, the death of that pet is a tragedy, where it might not be for others. For young people who think of school as an ultimate thing, anything less than an A is simply unacceptable, where it might be fine for others. And for some who believe politics is an ultimate thing, 
the win of a candidate they deem unfit for service could garner the same reaction as the death of a loved one. It's not absurd. In fact, it's probably more common than you think. With every election, it seems like one side or the other has those who turn into doomsday prophets the moment the results are in. The reasons for this reaction vary, but the point remains the same. The loss of the vote translates in their mind into the loss of something ultimate. But is what we've lost ultimate? This should cause us all to pause. What do we believe to be ultimate? I'm reminded of Paul's words in Colossians 3 that say this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here it is helpful to be reminded that there is no Republican or Democrat, right-wing or left-wing, there are no sides or legislation that are ultimate things. Ultimately, there is only eternal things. A God who loves us, a Son who gave everything for us, and an eternity given freely to us. And while we should always seek to make this world a better place for those around us by using our civil responsibilities like voting and the like, we should always remember that no matter the outcome, God is still God, and we place all trust in him. So I congratulate Miss Handler on her recognition of the larger issues at play and the work she has done to come to grips with how she processes trauma. In the future, I hope she and many others can find a more solid footing on the things that are truly ultimate, rather than the uncertainty of who wins or loses. Because ultimately, God is something we will never lose. And that's it for this episode of the Bold Speak Podcast. Thank you again so much for joining me. Make sure you connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash The Bold Speak. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.theboldspeak.com. Also, subscribe to this channel and our other media channels to make sure you stay up to date on the latest information, news, and media as we move it along to you. Until next time, everyone, thanks again for joining me. I'm Anthony Creeden, and that is The Bold Speak. <laughs>